Eagles Entertainment. With the 10th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and today we continue our journey series as we follow the paths of the Eagles' pair of day two selections in the 2021 NFL Draft. Offensive lineman Landon Dickerson and defensive lineman Milton Williams. How did they get to Philly? and what was said about them along the way. We're going to go through it all from A to Z right here on the show. Before we get there, though, just a couple of things. First up, this is going to be a very Eagles-centric show. So for our non-Eagles fan audience, don't worry, we'll be back to talking about your team in no time. We're continuing our breakdowns of every class around the league right here on the show. We're actually wrapping that up next week with the NFC and AFC South. So stay tuned for those on the feed. We talked about the AFC and NFC West this past Monday, we're talking, we talked about the North squads on both conferences last week. So make sure you go check those out if you have not already. To our Eagles fans, if you're not already, be sure, go subscribe to this podcast. If you're checking it out right now just to hear the analysis or the interviews about Landon Dickerson and Milton Williams, I am here to tell you that you don't need to wait. If you were subscribed all along, you would have heard all of this analysis and all of this insight over the last year, and you would have been well-equipped with your own opinions on the Eagles' decision to take both of these guys in April's draft. We are talking about prospects all across the country, all season long, and you can get that analysis to your podcast device just by hitting that subscribe button. And if you have not already, please be sure to do so. And while you're there, you can throw us a rating and a review because that really helps us out as well. That being said, let's get this episode rolling. I'm excited. Let's jump back in time to hear more about these guys and their journeys to Philadelphia. We're going to start things off with Landon Dickerson. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. Landon Dickerson, the graduate transfer from Florida State, offensive lineman that became the latest addition to Alabama's 2019 recruiting class. And that was from June 2019 with audio from Touchdown Alabama as the big news came across the college football tickers around the country. Landon Dickerson, the former five-star offensive tackle recruit from North Carolina, would be transferring from Florida State to the University of Alabama. And that was seen as a huge get for Nick Saban and his staff. The Tide had just lost their starting center, Ross Piercebacher, to the NFL Draft, where he was a fifth-round pick by the Washington football team. And for a team with national title aspirations, once again, Alabama had a huge need up front. So they go out and they get Dickerson out of the transfer portal. Now, as I mentioned, he was a former five-star recruit. He had offers from all of the Blue Bloods coming out of high school, and he settled on the Seminoles down in Tallahassee. As a true freshman in 2016, he started the first seven games of the season at right guard before a right knee injury ended his season. The following year, in 2017, he started every game that he played on the other side at left guard, but an ankle injury cut that season short as well. The following year, in 2018, he started just two games with one at left tackle, the other coming at right tackle. An ankle injury kind of hobbled him after that second game, and it was decided that it would be best for him to shut it down, maintain that redshirt season that year, and after the season, Dickerson graduated from Florida State. Just three years it took him to get his degree, and he entered the portal winding up in Tuscaloosa. And despite all those injuries, as you're going to find out, he was able to maintain that top flight prospect status despite that injury history with the Seminoles. That fall at the Tide, Dickerson started all 13 games with four starts at right guard and the other nine coming at center for the departed Piercebacher. He was named second team All-SEC and he was viewed as a linchpin for potentially one of the best offensive lines in the country entering his redshirt senior season last fall in 2020. And that was a line that lived up to the hype. They won the Joe Moore Award as the top offensive line in the nation at the end of the 2020 season, and that is a very highly regarded award. I can tell you that offensive lines around the country are vying hard for that hardware. Uh, it is a very well-respected award, and Alabama was able to come away with it last year. A big part of that was Landon Dickerson and his play. But how exactly did Dickerson ingratiate himself that quickly back in 2019 down in Tuscaloosa? To find out, I caught up with his former offensive coordinator, Steve Sarkeesian, who is now the head coach at Texas. We spoke a couple of weeks ago over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, and Coach Sark brought up just how Dickerson went about becoming a leader for the Tide while also discussing what he meant to that offense in general. The other big thing with watching you guys offensively is, you know, Mac Jones putting all the big numbers, uh, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Henry Ruggs, Jerry Judy. 
the run game you always have to kind of worry about with you guys. And obviously, the offensive line was always outstanding. Um, and Landon Dickerson uh, working at the pivot there at center. Uh, how important was it to have that kind of anchor there in the middle of the offensive line? Well, it was huge. You know, was like anything with us, when you're playing center, I think leadership is critical. And Landon provided a great deal of leadership for us, especially as a transfer uh, coming in from Florida State, getting acclimated to, to our organization. Um, I think he, he stepped right in and, and earned instant respect with his, with his focus, his preparation, his attention to detail, but yet also his leadership. One thing that, that Landon provides in-game, uh, he's a big, powerful man, but yet very flexible. Uh, you know, I, I think that was what was very unique about him is, yes, he's massive. Yes, he's strong. Uh, but the ability to, to stay off the ground, really good balance and body control, play low to high, all great characteristics of offensive line play he had with being a really big man. And then, too, Coach, he offers that position versatility. I know there were games where, you know, a guard goes down mid-drive and he's got to step over to left guard or to right guard. He's started every single uh, position along the front over the course of his career. How important is that versatility, not just for a starter, but for a backup as well? Well, it was huge. You know, for Landon, you know, he's got a really high football IQ. I think he understands the game of football and why we're trying to do what we do. But again, that that position flex that he provides, and you know, we, we played him all over on the offensive line. Uh, but there's also maturity about him. Uh, he didn't, there was no anxiety. There was no panic. It was like, okay, I'll, I'll go play right guard now. That's fine. Or I'll play left guard now. That's okay. I mean, it was, it was almost seamless when he did that. Uh, and I think a lot of that lends to his maturity. I think he, he's a very mature guy. He's He's been around a lot of high-level football. He's played a lot of high-level football. And the, the moment was really never too big for him. So it was apparent to anybody watching this group on film that they were going to be a dominant force this past fall, even early on. The Tide get off to a 4-0 start. That includes a dominant win against the Georgia Bulldogs. Ben Fennell, right here on the show, got on his soapbox to talk about these Tide trench players as he gave them his game ball right here on the show after the win over UGA. Yeah, it's easy. Let's keep it on the Alabama offensive side of the ball. 564 yards of offense against this daunting Georgia defense who only allowed 700 yards the previous three games. So my game's going to the offensive line. Landon Dickerson, I think, is a really interesting center. And I think the the prospect draft community is a little bit behind the eight ball with the center position and some of the interior offensive linemen. This guy was a Florida State grad transfer. At Florida State, he has started games at right guard, left guard, right tackle, left tackle, comes over to Alabama. Oh, yeah, you're going to be our center. And he looked great out there against Georgia. A lot of one-on-one blocks against big Jordan Davis. There's a couple stalemates. That's typically how those are going to go against big Jordan Davis. But the second he was able to climb to the second level or pull out on the perimeter, a couple highlight blocks, smashing uh, Richard LeCount on the perimeter. He tossed the safety downfield. He's got an edge to him. He's mean. I just love this offensive line. 40 carries, 167 yards. I thought they really hit their stride in the second half. I just really thought that offensive line against that, you know, dominant front seven of Georgia and Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt and Monty Rice and all those guys up there, really, really impressed with that group, particularly Leatherwood Brown and Landon Dickerson. Now, if you listen to the show throughout the season, you know it almost became a bit of a running joke that Ben had an absolute love affair with this Alabama offensive line, and namely Landon Dickerson. He found any excuse he could to bring them up almost on a weekly basis. Now, after their 5-0 start, they get that win against Tennessee. The big talk surrounding Alabama was how the offense could change with the loss of Jalen Waddell after his ankle injury. As I talked about the picture of the wide receiver room, Ben had to let us know, don't forget about Dickerson and this offensive line. And I'm glad you brought up John Mechie. You know, I mentioned him a couple weeks ago here on the show. This is a guy who's definitely had a little bit of a breakout here this year as their uh, third target in that offense. Now him jumping up to number two. Uh, Mechie, I think, will be more of a household, you know, wide-known name, uh, I think, moving forward. Only and Fran, let me just put Alabama offense to bed real fast. Landon yep. Dickerson had a slide over for 31 snaps at left guard last week for Deontay Brown. This guy has snaps in college football at left tackle, left guard, center, right guard, right tackle. Nasty play demeanor, play style style and a pro style offense we don't talk enough about the interior offensive alignment at this point in the season but Landon Dickerson I've just become a huge fan of this kid in a week in week out basis 
So good note there from Ben on Dickerson, who proved just how valuable that versatility was in the win over the Vols. Now, the Tide, of course, they would continue to roll. And after that win over Auburn in the Iron Bowl, Ben made sure that that offensive line got the love they deserved once again as they had the play of the week in his eyes in a game-sealing touchdown run to close out the victory. Well, this isn't too special. It's just a, a brutal run play that really crushed the uh, comeback chance that Auburn was going to do in the second half in the third quarter. Alabama, Najee Harris had a 39-yard touchdown run off that left-hand side. A brutal double team with Alex Leatherwood and Deontay Thompson. Landon Dickerson climbing to the second level. Harris pressing the hole, vision out the back door, home run speed, making everybody miss in the open field. It was just a, a beautiful run play between the tackles by a lot of NFL prospects. Najee Harris, Leatherwood, Brown, Dickerson, all those guys are playing on Sunday. It was just an impressive play. And to see them all celebrating after the play, man, it just gets me fired up to see the offensive linemen knowing they did their job in a dominant fashion and are excited about it. And I just love seeing that, especially on Saturdays in college. That excitement that Ben talked about there at the end, you saw that a lot from Landon Dickerson on film. That was something that consistently showed up was his love for his teammates and the excitement he had whenever they had a big play. And oftentimes, he was the escalator for that. He was the guy who kind of opened the hole or was able to keep quarterback Mac Jones upright. So uh, we get into the deep part of the season. Alabama is well on their way to a title run. Senior Bowl invitations have gone out. Landon Dickerson, one of the first announced acceptances as he made his intentions known. He was going to be heading down to Mobile after the season. Every week here on the show, Ben, Dane Brugler, and I share a player that we've studied on tape over the last week. We call it our film room recap. And it was this week that Dane brought up Landon Dickerson, who had recently pegged in the first round of a recent mock draft. Here's what Dane had to say and the conversation that it sparked afterwards. You know, credit to Ben, because I know Ben's been high on him for a while. But Landon Dickerson for Alabama, I, I mean, he the medicals are, might be an issue. That, that's something that is the that's the red flag. That's the asterisk on, you know, uh, having him in my first round, which I never thought I, I, I would would have that would have happened. Uh, but studying him last week and then talking to people around the league, uh, this guy has a chance to go in the first round, uh, plain and simple. And it just comes down to the medicals, but he's, uh, you know, his first three years at Florida State, couldn't stay healthy. Last two years at Alabama, he has stayed healthy. I think he's probably a better guard prospect, but that, that guard center flexibility, it's there. And he, he could probably even kick out and play tackle uh, if you needed him to in a pinch. But I think he's the he's ideally suited at guard. A big, brawny blocker, uh, very intelligent. Uh, the toughness is off the charts. Uh, ben kind of alluded to the the borderline dirty plays. Uh, but he's the type of guy, if, if he's on your team, you love it. If you play against him, he frustrates you because he's he he, he does play so competitive through the, through the whistle. And so he does not let up. Uh, easy guy to like. And teams that really place the value on their interior linemen, being smart, tough, uh, scheme versatile, uh, they're going to love Landon Dickerson. So um, I think with that competitive makeup and the way he's wired, he's going to go somewhere in the top 60 picks. It's just a matter of how high. Could he sneak into the first round? Yeah, I think it's possible. Just sorting through the draft capital on what it takes, you know, versus Ragnow and Billy Price and Garrett Bradbury and, you know, Cesar Ruiz and all them. I know where does he fall in that pecking order of these centers that go in the first round? Does he have that ability? Yeah, so it's funny that you brought up one of those names, Ben, because as Dane was talking about him, he's still fresh in my mind because I just studied him this morning along with Deontay Brown. And the Frank Ragnow comp actually isn't bad. You know, I think when you look at their their dimensions, uh, Frank Ragnow also played both guard and center at Arkansas. I think when you look at their skill set and what they kind of bring – Ragnow was a more experienced player just because he was more durable during his time at Arkansas. And the, and the medical, I think, will be big for him uh, in terms of uh, Lander Dickerson. But he's that kind of player. I mean, he's big. He's fit. I mean, he is thick. He carries those pads really well. I mean, he, he looks the part for sure. Um, he's not an explosive athlete, but he, I think he's good enough there across the board. I don't know that you have the same limitations that you would have uh, with Deontay Brown in space, but um, I'll tell you what, with Dickerson, uh, checks a lot of boxes. And, and you know, from what I could tell, he is known well for his uh, football intelligence as well as football character. I know when he was at Florida State and the time that he spent away, you know, coaches kind of raved about, uh, you know, hey, look, we're really missing um, what he brings to the off the field as well, not just on the field. So, um, no, Landon Dickerson, a really an interesting prospect, and I'm glad uh, we were able to break him down. And again, he will be uh, at the senior ball, as we talked about earlier in the show. 
whether it was Frank Ragnow, who was a first-round pick by the Detroit Lions a few years ago uh, after an injury, kind of put a damper on his prospects that are in the draft out of Arkansas, by the way, or Travis Frederick. That was a comp that I had seen out there by our friend Brandon Thorne, who we're going to hear from soon as well. Uh, there were examples of centers with that body type and that profile that were going in round one of the draft. The hang-up with Landon, obviously, was going to be the medical history, as Dane mentioned. He had been healthy up to that point at Alabama, but would he be able to shake those couple of years at Florida State? Fast forward a couple of weeks, Alabama is set to take on Florida in the SEC title game. I actually dove deep into the matchup of Dickerson against future Packers draft pick Gators nose tackle TJ Slayton the week before that game. Unfortunately, with just five minutes left and what was a convincing win for the Tide, Dickerson would tear his ACL in his left knee. That was the opposite knee from that first knee injury way back in 2016. It was a bit of a gut punch for college football fans everywhere because not only was Dickerson having a great season, but he was also one of the great people, one of the great personalities in the sport. So Alabama losing him for the title run was a tough pill to swallow. Dickerson would get surgery soon afterwards, that week after the SEC title, but he wasn't going to just silently slink into the shadows. Instead, we got to see a bit more of him in that national title game against Ohio State. Look at the big fellas coming in. How about this? Blew out his knee and a freak play late in the win over Florida. He thought he was done. He's lobbied so hard to have one little moment. Remember when he was taken off in the cart and all the teammates were hugging him? Show of respect. He's hugging every guy in that huddle. Really the glue of not just that offensive line, but a big part of the leadership, one of the pillars of this entire offense. Great to see Coach giving him a chance to come out and play in the national championship. Great center and a gifted lobbyist, because there's really no way he should be out there. How awesome was that moment with Landon Dickerson at the end? Like, that was, like, maybe what maybe Crazy. one of my favorite moments of college football this season, for sure. It was cool, and it looked like there was a little bit of, like, campaigning to Saban there on the sideline, <laughs> and then just oh, yeah. that little enthusiasm when he gave him the go-ahead and Saban said in the postgame, yeah, he won wanted to do it and like all right we let him it was just a really kind of cool moment and Landon Dickerson to see him pregame that guy is enormous he is yeah. not one of your squatty short Jason Kelsey centers no. this guy is 6'5 340 at one point in his career uh and he is every bit of it he's a really fun player and you could just like see him how that like probably scripted out too because he was probably like fighting like coach I want to wear pads you know just for warm-ups like I just right. want to warm up with my team and then like he gets to that point and you know he was thinking he's playing chess thinking like thinking the next move ahead we're gonna be blowing them out i want to be out there to kneel down and he convinced them on the side that was just awesome how, yeah. how much do you have to love football to you know not only just be there for your teammates to be in full dress and then to be you know full pads the entire game and then to campaign to get in there when you just had surgery on your acl a few weeks ago like I, you have to really love football for that and that that goes i mean was anybody really it, it was a surprise in that I just you know I didn't expect it but it wasn't a surprise when you think about Landon Dickerson and everything we've heard about him and his football yep. character and the way he's respected in that locker room uh I mean it's why in my first mock draft I included him uh in the first round as as I think he's gonna you know can be a starting level guard in this league uh but you know I don't now with the injury it's hard to figure out what to do with them that moment, even still to this day, like if you have not seen the video, go find it on YouTube. Him entering the national title game is one of my favorite moments in college football, certainly of last season, but maybe ever. I absolutely loved that, and I think it's really representative of who Landon Dickerson is and just to see how happy his teammates were for him. I know we played the audio there. You could hear the, the reaction from the announcers, but just seeing the video of all of his teammates responding to him coming onto the field it was outstanding. And even after the game in the trophy presentation, he's up on stage and you could just feel that dynamic between he and his teammates. The clip of him entering the game uh, on the final kneel down, that went viral. But that was not the first time that had happened. And it certainly was not going to be the last, whether it was his dancing on the sidelines in the middle of games, uh, flopping and drawing flags in rivalry games against LSU, or doing cartwheels in the background of teammates' media interviews just weeks after a torn ACL. Uh, Landon Dickerson has done a number of things over just the last year that have caught national attention. And one of those things was building a makeshift gym at his house for his teammates to come and get a workout in during the pandemic since they couldn't always do that on campus due to COVID-19 protocols. Dickerson was asked about this at his press conference after he was drafted by the Eagles. Here's what he had to say. So the gym was actually temporary. I'm standing in the carport right now where it was, but it was it was temporary for the pandemic. Um, you know, the reason it came up was, you know, obviously everybody got sent home. We went into quarantine. 
you know, businesses shut down, the facility was shut down. And, you know, springtime is time for guys to develop, get better. And I wanted to create an opportunity for anybody on the team that was staying here in Tuscaloosa or if they were, you know, coming back for some reason to have a place to work out to be able to get better and make the team better. That was the biggest thing is, you know, providing guys that opportunity. So that was really where it came from. It was out of necessity of, you know, we didn't have the ability to go work out at our facility. So, you know, I wanted to give the guys a place to come work out. Another great story about Dickerson from his days at Alabama has to do with some, let's say, alterations he had to make to his car. Uh, and what started as a funny college kid story kind of turned into a great opportunity to do some good down there in Tuscaloosa. Landon talked about that with Dave Spadaro over on the Eagles Insider Podcast. I'd like to talk to you about something off the field, a story that I've heard from your days at Alabama, the bumper story. Uh, your truck is, um, your bumpers, front bumper's hanging off. So you get a railroad tie, right? Mr. Handyman. You're a handyman, right? Yes. Uh, tell me about that. You, you decide to get a railroad tie and stick it to your front bumper. Economical decision. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. So college budget, obviously, not it's not extensive. So I went to a body shop, asked, you know, what, what it costs to get a, a bumper from, you know, OEM parts put back on. They told you how much? Uh, around $3,000. A little expensive for me. Okay. So... I was at Lowe's getting some stuff, saw the railroad ties in the parking lot, asked the cashier to ring me up how much they were. I think she said you know, 12 or 15 bucks. I was like, you know, that looks like it's about the size of a bumper. It might fit on there kind of perfectly. So went and bought one, bought some bolts, mounted right up. Very cool. And you, it went viral. And you turned that into something really great. You used the bumper to raise money for the family of a firefighter who was stricken with cancer, stage four cancer. Can can you talk about this and the great success that you had with that campaign? Yeah, so while we were down in Miami for the national championship, uh, Brian Walnevitz is a fire chief down there and he's a huge Alabama fan and all the guys at the station, he got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer a while back, but a bunch of guys at the station pulled together and got him tickets for the game because they, they knew he was a huge fan and you know he, he still goes to work every day. He shows up. He doesn't let anything get in his way. And I really appreciate and respect people like that because you know he's, he's got a good excuse if he doesn't want to go to work. But you know he, he's there to serve and help his community. So I got up with him through the coaching staff and I talked to him probably every other day after the national championship. I called him before we left to get on the bus to go to the game. And, you know, we got back to Tuscaloosa, and I was like, I I'm going to eventually have to get a an actual bumper to go on my truck. So I was, you know, I was talking to, you know, my marketing team and, you know, Mac a little bit, and I was like, it'd be kind of cool to, you know, raffle this thing off and just, you know, give the money to charity. And Brian actually works with Firefighters to the Rescue, which is a, a small charity down there. They kind of, they really run off donations, and they help first responders in that area to, you know, whatever they may need. So... You know, we ended up doing the raffle and raising, I think, almost $47,000 for the charity, and it was just it was really great. So make sure you go listen to that entire interview with Dave had with Landon Dickerson over on the Eagles Insider Podcast, wherever podcasts can be found. You get a sense of Landon's personality and just why everybody, that's teammates, coaches, support staff, literally everybody that comes around this kid. The guys at the Senior Bowl, Jim Nagy, that entire crew, he's got such a great relationship with everybody, especially his teammates. Ironically enough, that's something that Eagles VP of Player Personnel Andy Weidel brought up to me about Dickerson when just a couple of weeks after that game, that national title game, they met down at the Senior Bowl for the first time. Dickerson was one of the players the Eagles interviewed in Mobile. Here's Andy on how that meeting went down down at the Senior Bowl. Yeah, you know, we did. He came down there and he did interviews all week. And uh, him and Devonta Smith were down there interviewing and, and spent time and, and they stayed the week. And we had a great interview with Landon and, and Devonta, both of them. But Landon really, uh, his personality shines through and just the leadership and seeing him interact with the, a couple of his teammates that were down there. And, uh, you know, he was just a, 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 an eagle type of person, we thought, you know, and just the, how he spoke about his teammates, how he spoke about his team. Um, you know, it just, he made a really strong impression with us and the scouts that were down there with me in, in Mobile. So uh, couldn't be happier and more excited to add the player and the person to our program. Now, despite the fact that Dickerson obviously couldn't participate in any of the pre-draft process from an on-field standpoint, and despite the fact that the acquisition of medical information was going to be much harder to come by than in any other draft process ever, 
I found it to be fascinating that Dickerson was still being talked about as a first-round pick, a top 45 type of prospect by NFL insiders. We talked about it here in the show all throughout the winter and the spring after the injury. Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network, he released a top 50 big board in February. We talked about how he had Dickerson rising seven, eight spots despite the injury. ESPN's Todd McShay still had him very highly rated despite the injury. Dane Brugler said a couple times here on the show, still felt he was going to be a top 50 pick despite the injury. That alone told you that the opinion of NFL teams had on this kid and the type of player in person that he was. And it wasn't just about the football character and the off-field portion of this because for people that just watch the film and only go off the tape, he was a really impressive player as well. I know that our friend Greg Cosell thought very highly of, of Landon Dickerson, but one person in particular, Brandon Thorne, was really high on it. Brandon is one of the most well-respected voices in evaluating offensive line in the media space. He does outstanding work, and he was a part of Bleacher Report's revamped NFL draft coverage this spring, where they brought in several voices to create a big board of prospects, including a couple of former NFL scouts. Now, in that final ranking, in that final big board, Devontae Smith, was their number five overall player. But Landon Dickerson was number eight. He was the second offensive lineman on their board behind only Penny Sewell, who went eight overall to the Detroit Lions. He was ahead of a handful of future top 10 picks in Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, Patrick Sertan, J.C. Horn. It was a bold, bold take. And many people will question bold takes. But I appreciate them, especially if I know that they're coming from an educated place and they come from film study, which I know is the case whenever Brandon Thorne is involved with something. And that's why... I had to get Brandon on this show to discuss what he saw in Dickerson and what made him so confident in his decision to grade him out that highly based off of his critical factors when evaluating the offensive line position. Yeah, so the critical factors actually don't really change for any position based on how I was taught at Scouting Academy. There's five of them that apply to all positions, obviously manifest themselves in different ways, but it's uh, play strength, play speed, mental processing, competitive toughness, and athletic ability. So, you know, of those five, um, you know, I think Dickerson is at least solid, average, and all of them are better. Um, now, I think his top ones really are competitive toughness, you know, is, you know, 10 out of 10, you know, whatever your grading scale is, right. it's the yep. highest. Um, and then play strength, I think, is probably right there as well. It's it's very close to elite, if not elite. And also, I kind of look at power a little differently than play strength. Yep. You know, um, so I think his power as well is right there, kind of neck and neck with his play strength. So to be able to not only, you know, absorb uh, force from defenders and overcome that with strength, but also to deliver it. Um, you know, explosively at the point of attack. Uh, he has both of those abilities. Uh, so like really, I think that translates into like anchoring and also generating movement at the point of attack. So I think he could do both those at close to an elite level. Um, I to cut you off there. It just like an analogy that has always worked for me in the past. It was given to me by uh, a strength coach a few years ago was, you know, if you think of the differences between strength and power, almost to uh, the element of water, right? So uh, power is a, a stream or a river going full blast with a current that's just moving everything in its path. Whereas strength, the ability to anchor is more like a block of ice, an impenetrable force, right? So uh, if you think of it as, you know, with Landon Dickerson, uh, he is both strong and powerful. He can move people against their will while also stopping other people's momentum as well. Yeah, for sure. I In my report, I have elite play strength with cinder blocks for hands. Yep. <laughs> You know, I really think his hands are very, very heavy um, and he's able to generate quite a bit of power with them. So, you know, so as, as far as the critical factors to, to go on for the, from those, I think his mental processing is close to elite as well. I think it's certainly very good um, on my scale. And I think his athletic ability is solid. That's probably his lowest one. Um, but it's, you know, it reaches that baseline functional ability. Um, but if you, you know, I think athletic ability and mental processing combined equal play speed. Mm -hmm. So if you have a solid athlete who's a really quick processor, you know, I think their play speed can be close to elite, if not just very good. And I, so I think his play speed is right there um, on kind of that very good level. So, um, <clears throat> and then there's position specific traits that I look at, you know, in terms of uh, gap run blocking, zone run blocking, pass protection, anchor, use of hands. Um, and I think that he's, you know, 
solid again at all those uh you know a couple of them close to elite i think maybe his weakest one would probably be zone run blocking just because it kind of is so tied into that athletic ability but you know alabama runs a lot of zone and i've seen him you know reach shades and reach two eyes and uh you know cut off linebackers at the second level and stuff like that so he you know that's why i was so high on him man he was my second rated offensive lineman in the draft i think he could do pretty much everything at a very high level like to me it was kind of a no-brainer grade i felt very strongly about it and then when i got to talk to him and pick his brain and and you know just really see how smart he was and you know it, you know i just felt really good about his evaluation strictly from the tape so the buzz on dickerson was still out there despite the injury and throughout the process he was in a lot of one round mock drafts and was in pretty much every two round mock draft he would have, we would have fans in our draft mailbag segment submit their mock drafts all the time, and there was one in particular that really stood out to me when I went back and looked at our show notes after the draft, and uh, this one came from CMART923. He actually submitted this mock draft where he had the Eagles taking Dickerson in round two, and I talked about the pick and the fit and all that, but perhaps even more impressive, CMART also had the Eagles taking Kenny Gainwell in the middle rounds and Patrick Johnson from Tulane in the seventh round. So uh, take a bow, CMART. Uh, I'm sure you had to be happy with how the draft played out for the Eagles. And I broke that mock draft down. Uh, that was right, right around the end of March, literally days before we posted our offensive line preview episode of this show. And in those preview shows, we broke down every position into superlatives and, and you know the best run blocker, best pass protector, you know the toughest, you know the toughest blocker, all that. And when it came to talking about which offensive line were the best run blockers. Well, I had to discuss the guy the Eagles would eventually take in the second round. And we'll start things off with the best r- overall run blocker. We'll start in the run game here. I'm going to go with a guy in Landon Dickerson uh, at center. There's been a lot written about Landon Dickerson. Some people extremely high uh, on the former Florida State star turned into Alabama. Uh, he's been he's played all five offensive line positions. You love him on the interior, even though he's I mean he's a big physical player. Uh, the way that he's able to work in tandem with his guards in the run game, uh, really really fun to be able to watch him and Deontay Brown work uh, at the point of attack and moving guys up front. Uh, when you factor that in with his toughness and his tenacity, uh, how good he is with his hands. Uh, I went with Landon Dickerson here. Obviously, the medical going to be a huge, huge part of the evaluation here and, and the overall projection. But uh, in terms of just watching on film, uh, I would say he would be my favorite run blocker uh, of this group. So fast forward a couple of weeks to the NFL draft. The Eagles make him the selection with their second round choice. After the pick, Howie Roseman and Andy Weidel were asked about the medical history and how that was factored into the grade for Landon Dickerson. Here's what Howie and Andy had to say. So with the 37th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select a guard from Alabama, Landon Dickerson. Well, we think this is a special player and a special person, and um, we don't think that there's any chance that this guy would be available at the 37th pick uh, without those concerns and, and just... When we think about what this, what kind of player this guy can be, what kind of person this guy could be for our football team, um, it just re- was really exciting for us. Um, and do you want to add to that? Yeah, just you know the the, the makeup of Landon, uh, the ability to overcome adversity, the mental toughness, the fortitude that he has as a player, as a person, the leadership. I think when he when he took all that into account, you know, it made sense for us right there. And uh, there was a comfort level, there was an excitement. Um, amongst, you know, in the building, you know, with the coaches and scouts and uh, the player, what he meant to the University of Alabama. We, we have great ties down there. Our scouts, Ian Cunningham, Alan Walking, uh, Joe Panunzio here with us. He's been on staff down there. We have a lot of strong ties and, and relationships down there. And uh, we knew this, we knew him very well. You know, we knew him very well. Our guys did an excellent job getting the background information. And uh, there was just a comfort level with him there. And there was an excitement getting this caliber of player at 37. So after the draft, I had the pleasure of catching up with Andy Weidel, who you heard there, just to talk about this draft class. And I haven't played this audio anywhere else yet. So if you're listening to this right now, this is the first you've heard it. I asked Andy when he first got eyes on Landon Dickerson and what it was about his game that first stood out to him when evaluating that Alabama offensive line. I think when you watched Alabama play last year, uh, when you watched the tape, there's so many good players, prospects on that team that... You, know, you couldn't help but notice his physicality, his size, physicality, his anchor, uh, how he finished blocks. He played through the whistle. He, he put a lot of people on the ground and uh, just a different le- level of power and strength that he played with. And, uh, you know, his size stands out, obviously, when you see him, you know, a big man and uh, that played big and played physical. 
And he's a guy that has that positional versatility. He started at every single offensive line spot. What does that mean for him, both as a potential starter down the line and then also as a backup? What kind of value does that versatility bring? Well, the more you can do, the more value, you know, obviously it raises. And, uh, you know, we've seen it here over the course of the, the last three years. Just guys have to switch in games and, and go play and, and perform, whether it's guys like Sayamala did it a couple of years ago and we played over in London when Lane Johnson went down and, you know, we played right tackle and did yeoman's work and help us win the game. Um, those kind of guys are they're, they're really invaluable. And uh, the selflessness also that Landon has, and his ability, his football IQ, you know, all that coupled together, you know, really made him an attractive prospect for us and what we're doing here. Introducing season two of the Return Game podcast, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. When it comes to the Eagles-Cowboys rivalry, you think you know the whole story, but there is more. So, so much more, and we're about to uncover it all. And I think back to some of my favorite memories in the rivalry, and I remember exactly where I was who I was with, what I was doing for so many of these games. Lito Shepard's interception to ruin T.O.'s return to Philly. I remember leaping off the couch in my house where I grew up and nearly punching the ceiling. I jumped so high. The pickle juice game. I was actually on a family vacation in Disney World. We made sure we were back at our hotel so that we did not miss that game. 44-6. to I remember I was watching that game from a bar near the mall where I was finishing up Christmas shopping. Earlier that day I was with one of my best friends. Obviously we couldn't miss the game so we made sure we were geared up. We had a good spot in front of a big screen. We went through like 18 plates of appetizers that day. And I have these memories because these games meant so much and continue to mean so much to us as Eagles fans. So if you want to relish some of those great moments in the rivalry, be sure to go subscribe to Return Game and Eagles Entertainment original podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. So that'll do it with our coverage of Landon Dickerson and his journey here to Philadelphia. He's a guy that I think this city and this fan base is going to absolutely fall in love with. I'm really, really excited for his future here with the Eagles. Now, let's transition to the second of two selections on day two of this draft, Milton Williams out of Louisiana Tech. And this is a player that, let's just say I was excited about that selection because this is a guy that we have been talking about here on the show really since early February. It was actually the week of Valentine's Day that I first professed my love for Milton Williams here on the podcast. Here's the first time I brought his name to the table. So I'm going to go away from the cornerback position, and I'm going to go to the defensive tackle spot, where uh, just recently, uh, meaning this morning, uh, I had a couple hours, and I said, I'm going to watch somebody completely new. I want to watch a guy that I knew nothing about, uh, you know, that I hadn't done any film work on at all. And so I settled in on Louisiana Tech defensive tackle Milton Williams, who was a redshirt junior who declared for this coming draft. And I think when you look at Milton Williams, you look at the total, you know, the physical package. He's six foot four, under 280. That's how what he played at this past year. Converted defensive end who slid inside to defensive tackle for them this past season. Now, when you watch him on film, he was very, very disruptive. He ended up, you know, this season, uh, I think 10 TFLs, four and a half sacks. Um, but even just watching the film, you see a guy who's constantly making plays on the opposite side of the line of scrimmage. He's rangy. He's got good change of direction, a quick first step. He can get the edge on guards. He can get the edge on tackles. He slides up and down the line of scrimmage. You'll see him in the A gap. You'll see him in the B gap against guards. You'll see him work over the edge uh, against tackles as well. They'll stand him up. They move him around. He's got a very versatile skill set. But it's not just his feet that he wins with guys because he also has extremely heavy hands to jar opposing offensive linemen on contact, change the line of scrimmage and control blocks. He's not just a, Oh, let me just shoot gaps and get into the backfield. They do a lot of read and react stuff. You're going to see him two gap. You're going to see him jack an offensive lineman up, kind of play peekaboo and get off the block and flow to the football. He did a great job on the backside of plays of chasing things down. He was a high motor kid, made a lot of plays in pursuit. Now that was at a package that was six, four under 280 pounds. From what I understand right now, he's up over 290, and he's going. He's that athleticism that I saw on film is going to carry over. And I think when you look at the way that this kid tests, uh, and again, you know, 24 hours ago, 12 hours ago, I didn't know much about this kid other than he was on the underclassmen list. So getting a chance to watch him this week, I was really, really impressed. And I got news for for you guys. To me. He's one of the most intriguing defensive linemen in this class from an interior standpoint. I'm putting him in that same bucket. Me personally, as Levi Onzerike, as Jalen Twyman, Jay Tufele, that group, I think Milton Williams belongs in that discussion. This is a guy that's got the ability to be a disruptor. He really reminded me of Malik Jackson because of that versatility, the heavy hands, and the first step quickness, and the ability to have a go-to move, but then also have some compliments off it. 
I was really, really impressed with Milton Williams, guys. Um, uh, he he needed to get a little bit stronger, and he has done that over the course of the last couple of months. I, I'm really, really intrigued by this kid. Wow. All right. When, when did you become his agent? I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, look, if he, if he is, then my check got lost in the mail. So, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm still waiting on that one. He's, no, a, he's a really impressive player. That, I, I, I'm looking forward to diving in. I have not done a ton of work on him, so it's – you kind of set the bar high, so uh, I'm eager to dive in and see uh, see what my eyes tell me. I buzzed through him really quick this morning. He's an interesting player. He's definitely that tweener hybrid type lined up up and down the D-line. He could have lost some weight and had a positional fit. He could gain right. some weight and have a positional fit. Reminds me a little bit of the way Charles Amenehu played at Texas. Okay. Where you didn't know if you wanted him to lose 10 and be an edge or add a couple and be a three-tech, one-tech, a guy that can get it done in the trenches. But a guy definitely you could see the first step, the effort, the explosiveness, great at the point of attack, all things that Amenehu has brought to the Texans. I think similar stuff here with Milton Williams. That's a great call for him. Just checking boxes right there. Even what you just said, I mean, all right, good at the point of attack. He's great in pursuit. He can win as a pass rusher. Like a lot of things uh, working in favor of Milton Williams. Like, and if you're thinking La Tech, uh, you want to see him against some NFL competition. He's got tape against Miami last year, BYU this year, TCU this year. There's plenty of power five opponents. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, he'll, he'll get rocked by double teams every once in a while. But again, he was doing that at in the 270 range. You know, imagine him now at the 290 range uh, being able to hold up a little bit better. Uh, I'm really interested to see how he tests ultimately here uh, when they have their pro day. So, yeah, I was pretty high on Milton Williams when I studied him on film. And after studying him, I started poking around with people I know around the business. I actually spoke with one of the guys who was training him for his pro day, and he said he was actually going to blow the doors off the workout. So I knew the bubble was going to burst on him at some point. But before we get to the rest of the pre-draft process, why don't we just kind of take a step back and hear more about Williams during his college days? I caught up with his head coach at Louisiana Tech, Skip Holtz, recently over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast to discuss Milton and what he will bring to the Eagles both on and off the field. Here's a chunk of what he had to say. So we're going to talk about uh, Milton Williams, the Eagles' third-round pick, a guy that you know very, very well. And we're going to get into uh, what Milton brings on the field, what he brings off the field as well. Uh, I guess the one big question I have for you, before we dive into the background a little bit, uh, we've yep. talked about how Milton was a defensive end when he first got there and then slid inside to tackle this year. Could you just go into the, the reasoning behind that? What, what were the circumstances that led to that position switch for him? Well, when he came in here as a freshman in 2017, he was a 200 200- it was a 230-pound defensive end, uh, and now he weighs 290 pounds. I mean, so just in sheer, when you look at what he's done to his body and the progress and the growth that he's made over his time here in college, uh, it was just, it was a natural progression. It was one of need that we had, and also one that is, his body continued to mature and get bigger. But even as he got bigger, by evidence, by all his testing numbers, uh, he's a guy that could play both for us. So he, he played some defensive end in the 3-4, but he also went inside and played some three technique uh, in the four down in the four down package because of his size. But it was a little bit of what we had, uh, our need as a team, and also the way that Milton had developed, progressed, and the way that his body just uh, matured. When you start getting into a college program and you start getting on training table and lifting weights year-round you're no longer playing basketball and running track and doing all those other things and his body has just really responded as evidenced by his numbers so let's dig into the recruiting process with milton what was it like uh when you were trying to recruit him and bring him onto campus and uh what what was who was the kind of person uh that you were trying to acquire well, we, we always talk about you're looking for the package. You know, there's a lot of times you can just say, all right, we're looking for a football player. And you can look at all Milton's measurables, and that's who he is on the field. But we want the package. We want the student. We want the person. Uh, the biggest thing that comes from Milton, huge family guy. Tight-knit family, very close when he was here in college. He lived with his sister. Uh, big family guy. He's not a big partier, socialite, go-out guy. Uh, is really kind of a, a homebody. And so he was, I loved the recruiting process and how tight he was to his family and the values that he had from that family. Uh, he's just got a great core surrounding around him. Uh, love that. Milton as a 230 pound defensive end was not really highly recruited. When you go back and look at uh, who we competed against, it wasn't a lot of power five schools. I mean, it was a lot of schools maybe in the group. I remember us. Tulsa, maybe New Mexico State. There was a uh, couple smaller schools, and so was really excited. He's from Crowley, just south of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
Uh, but like I said, great, great talent on the football field. And when you looked at what he could become, I thought he was one of the steals of the recruiting class for sure. And then once you, you get him on campus, he's with your program for a couple of years. Uh, what kind of impact did he have on that locker room, on that meeting room uh, with the guys in that defensive line squad as well? Well, we talked earlier about the package. And when you look at Milton, it was. It was, yes, he's a great player, but he's a great leader. He's not a very vocal guy. He's not a rah-rah locker room, rally the troops. Uh, but yet was voted a team captain because of the respect that everybody had for him. Milton came in, he waited his turn, he didn't come in, he wasn't a, an immediate superstar, you know, when you put it on as the guy that came in and wasn't a freshman All-American, didn't start as a freshman. We had some pretty good players when you started looking at guys like Vernon Butler and Jalen Ferguson and some other guys that have gone on to the league. But he waited his turn. He, he got in the weight room with Kurt Hester, our strength coach. He worked incredibly hard. Uh, he's one of those guys that he comes early, he stays late, he's a no-nonsense guy, uh, as evidenced by what he's done to his body here over the last four years while he was in college. But uh, had an opportunity to come back for his senior year, but he left after his junior year. He had another year of eligibility to come back. Uh, but when you look at the progress that he made and the contribution he made here at Louisiana Tech, I am ecstatic for him. Uh, hated the news that he was going to go out. That was his decision. But now I am Milton Williams' biggest cheerleader. Not a lot I can do now, but uh, to watch him go and succeed. But like I said, I think what the Eagles get, what the fans get, they're going to find uh, a hardworking, committed family guy that's going to bring a lot of value uh, to the locker room, as you talked about. He's a pro. He handles his business. He's not a guy that you have to, he's never been in my office for any disciplinary issues, anything off the field, uh, takes care of his business academically. He's a pro that just, he takes care of his business. And so uh, love him, and I'm cheering my tail off for him. And I think the, the Eagle fans are going to have a lot of fun watching him wreak havoc from that defensive line spot. So great insight there from Coach Holtz. And again, for that entire interview, be sure to go check out the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast wherever you get your podcast. Now, needless to say, I was pretty high on Milton Williams after studying him for the first time. But how high? Well, I explained when we did our full preview of the defensive tackle position right here on the show, and this was recorded very soon after I first got eyes on his tape. All right, let's go to our, our next one here. Guy that you are higher on than most, and I will start things off with Milton Williams from Louisiana Tech. I think I talked about him last week on the show. Um, this is a guy who declared early for the draft, former defensive end who made the move uh, as more of an interior player this year. He played in the 270s, I believe. Well, he's up over 290 now. He's going to test like a freak. He's really, really disruptive. He's violent with his hands. Uh, I think I wrote down in my notes, he reminded me of Malik Jackson when Malik was coming out of uh, University of Tennessee. I think he's got that same kind of uh, flexibility positionally where he can play DN, he can play D-tackle. Either way, he's going to be really violent. He's going to be really disruptive. Run, run game, pass game. Uh, Milton Williams, a guy I think is going to be a lot higher on boards than uh, people right now are kind of giving him credit for. So I alluded to it there that I felt he would test very, very well. And so this was obviously before his pro day. And this draft cycle was certainly different for everybody involved because there was no combine in Indianapolis. At the time of that recording, we typically would have been getting ready for our trip to Indy. So with no workout, there were these combine training centers actually held little mini combine workouts of their own before the schools would start holding their pro days. And some of those numbers leaked to the media. Some of them didn't. Milton Williams, he was one of the guys whose numbers actually got into the hands of reporters after the workout at the Exos Training Center, and they were ridiculous. But the week afterwards, I welcomed NFL.com's Lance Zerline to the show to discuss that weird year with those athletic testing numbers to kind of sort through what he was taking from the process, and Williams' name actually happened to come up. Lance, I, I want to ask you, you know, obviously we're getting into the pro day circuit now. We've had some pro day workouts this week. Uh, on Tuesday, Northwestern uh, was getting after it. We saw Quinn Miners up at Wisconsin Whitewater. Uh, today, it's, you know, it's Wednesday. We've got Arkansas. We've got Wisconsin. So we've got the pro day circuit going. It's a little bit unique set of circumstances. But over the last couple of weeks, we also have had these little kind of mini combines at the, in these pro days at the training centers as well. So I've got a two-pronged question for you to kind of kick things off here. Number one, uh, from your standpoint as an analyst, as, a, as an evaluator, how do you handle this for your work that, with what you do over at NFL.com? And then B, how do you feel teams are going to handle this? So with who you've talked to uh, from around the NFL, 
How do you feel they're going to handle just the the unique situation when it comes to not just the regular pro days, but also the the times, the reports that they're going to get uh, from these training centers as well? Well, um, it's tough. You know, I, I've known that Milton Williams, for example, defensive tackle for from uh, Louisiana Tech, kind of a defense tackle, defensive end type. Um, I knew he was going to blow it up. I mean, I'd heard about his training at Exos, and he was going to have a big test, and he did. And and I tweeted about it and mentioned the results. And you know, I don't really know how you can fudge the bench press. I mean, there's some reps that might not count or whatever, but you can't really fudge the vertical, the the broad jump. Mark Dominic was there, former general manager, conducting it along with the former director of scouting from the. Uh, uh, I believe he's a scouting director with the uh, Carolina Panthers. I, his name slips my mind. But so they had NFL caliber people. Exos understands that credibility is a big deal. But I had a, a, a couple of NFL people just reach out and say, we're not going to we're going to wait until he works out at the pro day where we have our own people there, our own watches, our own stop clocks. You know, I mean, stopwatches, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So I think, you know, for me. It's curious for me. Last year, we saw absolutely outlandish um, <laughs> speed times from people when it was a bunch of YouTube. And, and I felt bad for the players who didn't get to have actual pro days. This year yeah. with pro days, NFL teams are basically saying, look, do it at your pro days, and, and it will matter more to us than if you do it at a facility that happens to be training you. Because, you know, in, in, in their opinion, it benefits the the facility, and it's hard to get around this. It benefits the facility if the guys they're training do exceptionally well. Now, that doesn't invalidate, you know, some of the workouts that are happening there. So what I do is I try to, t- you know, I'm curious about height, weight. Uh, I'm curious about explosiveness, speed, short area quickness, um, arm length. There are things that I will find valuable from those workouts if and when I get those, you know, sent to me. Mm-hmm. But, um, the actual pro days are going on as well. So guys who are draftable prospects should be working out at their pro days as well. And from what I understand, Milton Williams, for example, is going to work out at Louisiana tech just to prove, Hey, all those numbers you saw, they were the real deal. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of how I view it too, is if it'd be one thing, if a player is only going to do, uh, you know, the workouts at, you know, whether it's the Exos pro day or at, you know, the, the house of athlete combine or whatever it is, as opposed to doing it at both. And now it's just another exposure, uh, to, you know, to NFL personnel, uh, to me, I, I guess that would be the line of, you know, uh, differentiation between those guys. Is it, are, they, are they the ones that are doing it at both or are they just doing it at one place? Yeah. And that would be a little curious if you yeah. only did it at one and no NFL people were there. And well, we've got a video for you. So they want, they want to right. see you in person. Yep. They want to be there. They want to see you in person. And that's going to take place at the schools. I know the NFL doesn't really, uh, you know, it's my understanding, at least the NFL doesn't want to sanction those other workouts. Yep. And even though those workouts and those facilities, you know, may very well be extremely credible, they want to make sure that they keep a uniformity uh, to the workouts. And that's why the pro day circuit is underway. And, you know, I think that's going to be the, the testing of record. So it was definitely a unique set of circumstances, as I mentioned there with Lance. And thankfully, Milton Williams was not one of those players who only went through the workouts at Exos because he went back to his campus at Louisiana Tech, did the full pro day workout there, and blew it out of the water. Exactly what I expected, what I was told was going to happen beforehand. The numbers were insane, and it was a really, really impressive workout. So much so that Dane actually brought Milton up as his workout warrior just a few days later here on the show. Another workout warrior. I mean, I got to go with your guy, friend, Milton Williams. Ring hey, the bell. Cre- Ring I the bell, credit. Baby. Yeah, he. I mean, I, you're going to get your two percent here. Um, <laughs> he uh, was like six weeks ago. You brought him up as a guy that was flashing on tape for you, and it, I mean, he. The buzz started before his pro day. Now the buzz will be out of control. Six uh, three, two hundred eighty four pounds. Four six three and a one six five forty ten. 30 half in it, 38 and a half inch vert, which is just it's the silly. best. That's the best of any D tackle drafted in the last 10 years, man. Un- unreal. Unreal. Record uh, number. 10-1 broad, uh, 4-3-3 short shuttle, 6-9-6 in the three cone. Anything yep. under seven is remarkable. And then 34 benches, uh, bench press reps. So, uh, I mean, really the only negative it was the arm length, uh, 31 and a half, uh, which is was a little surprising. I don't. Mm. He doesn't always play like a long long-armed player but he yep. didn't 
necessarily play like a short arm player. So 31 and a half inch was a little surprising. You want to see, you know, at least close to 33 uh, there. But still, this guy's destined for a pick somewhere in the top 75. It's just just a matter of how high he's going to go. So you heard me mention there that the vertical jump for Milton Williams, and this is a test that people use to measure a player's explosiveness in a short area, was better than any defensive tackle drafted in the last decade. His 40 time of 4.63 was faster than any defensive tackle drafted in that same time span, the last 10 years. His 10-yard split of 1.65, that's from 0 to 10 yards, 1.65 seconds, that was in the 90th percentile of defensive tackles taken in that span. So a very, very good number. That's another measure of a player's explosiveness. Same with the broad jump. That measures the same thing. Only four defensive tackles jumped further than Williams in that test where he went over 10 feet. And if you have not seen a man that big jump 10 feet from a standing position, it's absolutely insane. I personally have only seen one guy do that in person as a defensive tackle. That was Solomon Thomas when he did it at the Combine a couple of years ago before he was the number three pick in that draft back in 2017. Speaking of Solomon Thomas, he was the only defensive tackle to run a faster three cone and one of just five defensive tackles to run a faster short shuttle than Milton Williams did over that 10-year span in the draft. So this is all a way of me saying that Milton Williams had a silly, ridiculous, insane, bananas workout. But again, he's more than just a workout guy. This athleticism shows up on tape, and that's why I wanted to make sure that our friend Greg Cosell watched him during that lead-up to the draft so he could break him down right here on the show. Here's what Greg had to say after watching him on tape. Yeah, and, and then I saw he had his pro day a couple of days ago. and uh, pretty, Ridiculous. Pretty yes. remarkable. He ran a 4.63 with a 38.5-inch vertical at 6'3", 284. Yes. I mean, that, that's pretty ridiculous. Yes. Um, I think his, his athleticism clearly shows up on tape, too. I mean, he's a very smooth, fluid athlete. He's got natural quickness, agility, change of direction. Um I went back and looked at some 2019 as well because I wanted to see how much D-tackle in the end he played because I was trying to figure out watching his tape what I thought he could be in the NFL. Is he an edge player? Is he a D-tackle? Because normally you don't think of D-tackles necessarily at 284 pounds, although the game has changed in the NFL. Um, I thought he was a really good run defender. I thought he played with excellent leverage, hand usage. I thought he controlled and displaced O-linemen. Now you'll get into the same issue with, you know, he didn't play at a power five school, but all we can do is watch the tape. Um, So I think, what is he? I didn't see him, even though he's a very good athlete, I didn't see him as twitchy as an edge player. So when all said and done, I kind of thought he could develop into a 4-3 DN, but that he might be a D tackle. He certainly could play inside and sub fronts and rush the quarterback. So that's the way I kind of saw him. Yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, like can he be a Michael Bennett kind of player player for for an NFL defense? Uh, And everybody's looking for those guys that can play outside, but essentially can be disruptors in the interior, uh, whether he's a full-time defensive tackle or if he's a, you know, quote-unquote base D end, you know, in your four-man front and then uh, on passing down slides inside. uh, I kind of wonder if that's the kind of career trajectory he could have. You know, it's funny you say that because Seattle, in those years when they had Michael Bennett, they lined up in that kind of – that, that over front, if I'm not mistaken, but instead of having the D end outside the offensive tackle, they brought the D end inside and he essentially became a four eye. Yep. You know, and, and, uh, I could certainly see Milton Williams in a role like that. Now, again, that becomes specific to a team and scheme, sure. but I think he can do that kind of thing. I was, I was impressed with him. You know, you, you were the one who mentioned him to me. I knew nothing about him. So when I popped on the tape, he was, totally virgin territory. I mean, I obviously knew you liked him by the way you mentioned his name to me, right. but I but I knew nothing about him, so I was just watching him with no sense at all. Um, I also thought in 2020, since I did look at 2019, I thought he improved meaningfully in 2020. I thought he looked like a quicker, more athletic player than he did in 2019, and that's always a good sign. Especially considering the fact that he put on weight uh, to slide inside. So uh, yeah. that's what's interesting. I, I, I hadn't watched the 19 stuff at all, and, he, and still to this day have not. Uh, I'm going purely off of what I saw in 20, and, and I was really, really intrigued uh, with that player. 
So at this point, you've heard plenty from us here on the show, but what did the Eagles see in Milton Williams before they made him the selection in round three? I caught up with Eagles VP of player personnel, Andy Weidel, to ask him his first impression on Williams and what stood out to him on tape. With the 73rd pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select Milton Williams, defensive end, Louisiana Tech. All right, so let's talk about Milton Williams. At what point did he first jump on your radar? Do you remember like the first time that you watched him and what kind of popped off to you first? Sure. If you watched the Alabama-Birmingham game and how he really, in the second half of that game, how he took it over and, and helped his, lead his team back uh, from behind and win that game. His explosiveness, his ability to disrupt, get off the ball, uh, whether it's from uh, interior position or defensive end, is you know, the get off, the violence, and the relentlessness he played with the motor in his closing speed, uh, all really attractive, uh, you know, elements to his game that, that we really valued. So you heard a couple of those buzzwords from Andy there and some of the things they really liked about Milton Williams as a scouting staff. But what about the coaches? What did they see from him and how do they feel he will make that transition? Well, Dave Spadaro actually caught up with new Eagles defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon after the pick to get three big things that stood out to him about Milton Williams. And when Dave chatted with Milton later that day, he brought those to his attention in this exclusive one-on-one interview with the Eagles third round pick. I know the Eagles are excited to have you. And, you know, I talked to defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon about you, and he listed three things that he thought were really important, and I'd like you to comment on all three of them. Number one, he said your character is through the ceiling. Um, love of the game, the way you conduct yourself on and off the field. Do you feel that you have exemplary character? Yes, uh, and I get a lot of credit to my parents. Uh, I've never really been in any trouble. Uh, I go to church, uh, so... Uh, I, got, I got Christ in my life, and I just try to treat everybody with the, with the same respect. Uh, like they say, the golden rule, treat people how you want to be treated. So, like I said, I, I never, I, I stay out of bad situations. I don't put myself in, in, in bad spots. Uh, I, I'm really like a homebody. I don't I don't go out a lot. If it's not about football or working out, and I'm somewhere playing video games, watching movies, things like that. Well, I want to talk about your homebody thing in just a minute because you do have three sisters. So I want to know who was running the household. I, I think I have a pretty good idea of that. Uh, n- number two, Jonathan said, mean and motor. You play mean and you've got a big motor. Uh, explain that. Is, that, is this a, a love of the game thing? Is this something that comes naturally to you, that that really fiery temperament on the field? Uh, yeah, this is, this is just a love for the game. I've been playing since I was in Little League and I think that's one of my best traits is being physical and having a mean streak about me when I'm on the field and Basically, it's just like whoever is lined up in front of me is basically just showing me a sign of disrespect. They disrespect me by getting in front of me. So I, I got to prove my point to, to make them earn my respect and things like that. So just be physically, just dominate my opponent and things like that. Just we get that mutual respect for each other. So that's what I think that's one of my uh, the best parts of my, about my game. All right. And then number three, he said your versatility, your ability to play down the line of scrimmage. Um, where does that come from? Is it something that you've learned through the years? It's not an easy thing. I'm not sure fans really understand going from inside to setting the edge on the uh, against the run on the outside, you know, uh, rushing the passer from the three technique. I mean, it's, it is not easy to be that versatile. How has that come to you through the years? I give all the credit to, to my college coaches. I had three different coordinators. Uh, my three years at Tech, we had three different defenses, three-man front, four-man front. And then my defensive line coaches, uh, Coach Rick Petrie and Coach Anthony Camp. They really, uh, Coach Petrie was, was my first D-line coach. He really was a technical coach. And he, he got me, uh, helped me get that experience of playing multiple positions with, with his time there. And then when Coach Camp came in, uh, really moved inside and, and focused a little bit more on the inside thing. But with the time, spending time with both of them, just over the past four years, just getting that, getting that experience at all four positions from practice, scrimmages, games, and all that thing, all things like that. And then, of course, watching a lot of tape. So you really kind of start to see see what blocks you're going to be expecting, depending on like backfield sets and things like that. And I just I, <clears throat> I give them all the credit for for that for uh, teaching me the game and uh, getting me where I am today. 
for that entire interview, be sure to go check out the Eagles Insider Podcast wherever podcasts can be found. Great stuff there from Dave. Getting insight only the insider can get with his access to Coach Jonathan Gannon down at the NovaCare Complex. Now, I liked getting Milton's thoughts on those bullet points as well. And speaking of Milton's thoughts, to wrap up this show, let's hear from him one final time because he was asked a lot at his press conference after the draft about how he felt he could be used in the NFL. Here's Milton talking about his versatile skill set. I think I'll be most comfortable uh, playing defensive tackle, but also having the same, uh, having the versatility to play outside world. Uh, basically, any position on a defensive line that, that the coaches uh, would like to uh, put me at, uh, I, I feel like I can be productive with, with, with the coaching and things like that. So uh, throughout my career in college, through high school, I, I didn't play virtually uh, every position on the defensive line. So uh, just, just wherever they put me, uh, I'll be ready. I feel like I'll be on the edges uh, on early downs, just with my strength and be able to hold point on the edge. Uh, but a third down, obvious passing downs, obvious passing downs. I feel like uh, I'll bump inside and be able to uh, be productive inside. But like I said, uh, my, in my college career, I played under uh, three defensive coordinators, so I'd have played in a three-man front, four-man front, and lined up all across. So uh, I'm comfortable with every position, and I just need to know where I'm gonna be and. Uh, I'm ready to roll. So there you have it. The journeys to the draft for both Landon Dickerson and Milton Williams, including our analysis on both players before they ended up here in Philadelphia. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to come back next week. We're going to do the same thing for all of the Eagles day three selections. And then if you have not already, make sure you go back and check out last week's episode centering around the Eagles first round pick Devontae Smith. And lastly, remember, if you're an Eagles fan and you enjoyed these episodes, if you're not already subscribed to the Journey to the Draft podcast, this episode should tell you why. If you were listening all year long, think of the head start you would have gotten on all of the newest Eagles. You would have been just like me in the studio on the Friday night of the draft, jumping up and down and fist pumping after the selection of Milton Williams. It's what makes this whole process fun, right? If you find your favorite players uh, and you hope that your team drafts them. And with the 2022 draft being such a pivotal one for the Eagles, now's the time. Go over wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe button, and get these shows sent to your device each and every week, twice a week, throughout the calendar year. We'll be back next week early, continuing our recap of 2021. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. We'll talk to you next week. Download the official mobile app of the Philadelphia Eagles. Catch breaking news, see real-time stats, watch live or on-demand video clips, listen to Eagles podcasts, and so much more. Now you can stay in touch with the Eagles anytime, anywhere.